Welcome to the Forward Church Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon from the series Colossians, Jesus is Lord. For more information about Forward, giving, or to request prayer, visit www.forwardchurchfamily.com. Amen. Well, welcome to week two of our series, Jesus is Lord. And one of my Probably one of my favorite, I don't know if it's my favorite, but one of my favorite stories of the, of the authority and the power of Jesus is when he went on a little boating trip with the disciples and he decided to take a nap. And he takes a nap and when he takes a nap, a, a major storm comes. And it had to have been a bad storm because the disciples, you know, they, they were fishermen and they, were, they, were, they took pride of being on a boat. They took pride of handling a storm and handling waves. So there must have been something that concerned them enough, a storm bad enough for, to get them to go tell Jesus about it, to wake him up. Okay. Cause he, as far as I knew, he, he, he wasn't a fisherman, but they've seen him do some pretty, pretty awesome stuff so far. Not only that, but just to get men to ask for help in general would have been pretty difficult in that time. So they, they go to him and he's sleeping and they wake him up and they say, Lord, we're going to perish. Do you not care? And they wake him up because they're concerned because the boat's starting to rock and the storm's coming. And, and it's, it's got them scared. And they wake him up. And he says, oh, you have little faith. He asks them where their faith is. And then he goes out and he looks at the, the waves and he rebukes them. He rebukes them. And some, some of your, this is in multiple gospels, but some of them says that he says, be silent, be still. He rebukes the wind and the waves and demonstrates his power. But the thing that I love about it and what I love about the story is the disciples' response to that because they looked at him and they began to ask themselves, who is this man that commands the wind and the waves and they obey him? You see, I can go out into any storm and I can command the winds and waves to do things. But the second part, getting them to obey me, that's where the problem is. But Jesus demonstrated his authority and it left the disciples asking, who is this man? You see, they had already spent time with him. They knew his name. They knew who he was. They'd seen him perform some miracles. They'd seen healings already. They'd seen demons cast out of people. But then he still amazes them and they say, who is this man? And I love the demonstration of his power and his authority over creation at this point. And we are in this series in Colossians that is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the same question they asked, who is this, we should ask ourselves. And this text that we're looking at today is going to be First Colossians, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And man, just the power in this. This is such a dense text, such a dense text that talks about the power of Jesus Christ. And I love the series, Jesus is Lord, and just the thought behind that, because just like Rachel was saying, sometimes we get caught up in the do's and don'ts. But this is just all about him. Our focus should be on Jesus, should be focused on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his power. And that's what we're going to get into today is we're going to look at the power that Jesus has. And this is going to be Colossians 1, 15 through 23. Would you all please stand as you read from God's Word? In the Bible under your seats, if you want to grab that one, it is page 983. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one. That's our gift to you. We're going to read in Colossians. This is chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the, gospel, from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Dear Jesus, we ask that you will be with us, that you will bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Father, speak through us. Move me aside, God. This is such an incredible text of your power, of everything you are. This is, this is such a powerful text, and I ask that we don't take it lightly. I ask that you will help me to articulate what you want from your word. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we all pray. Amen. You all can have a seat. You see, we, God has given all of us a capacity for amazement. He's gifted us with that, the feeling of amazement. And when I was, when I was younger in the, in the Army, we had, um, I had a colonel, and he was, he was in his 40s at this point. And he was just one of those guys that you were just impressed with. He, he had been uh, Special Forces. He still did Special Forces operations after he left uh, where I was, but he was our battalion commander. Um, he taught physics at West Point, so he was a super intelligent guy, just a sharp guy. He applied for the astronaut program, just someone that when start, they started talking, you listened. And me and him, we had this special relationship. You know, he, uh, he called me Meatball. It was a, I think it was a term of endearment, uh, but anyways, he, and I remember having a field training exercise with, with Colonel Goff, and, and it was a lot of younger soldiers there, and we had, the last part of it, we had to do a six-mile ruck march, and we used the term march very lightly because it was more like a run. Walking was allowed but highly discouraged, and we had to put our rucks on, and, and it was normally 20 to 40 pounds depending on how much of it you've ate. Mine was probably about 20 pounds because they eat a lot of it and uh, the food that you carry and stuff. So we all took off on this, and it was three miles down, three miles back. And I kind of hung out in the middle of the pack. That's kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm a meatball. I'm a meaty guy. I kind of hang out in the middle. I'm not in the front. I like to call it like the middle front, but that's okay. Um, so anyways, we, and Colonel Goff, here he is in the front. We're, you're talking a bunch of 18 to 24-year-olds or something, and you've got this 40-year-old man who just runs in front of everybody the entire time, no breaks. And, and the most fit guys couldn't keep up with him. So when I, when I finish up, everyone's, we took a break, and everyone's kind of hanging out, and he's hanging out there with us. And one of the guys that started to speak up that, was, that could see him, he at least finished inside of Colonel Goff, and he said, I thought I almost had you there for a second, sir. And Colonel Goff is listening to him, and, and Colonel Goff says, you, you think you almost had me, huh? And, we, and he said, yeah. So Colonel Goff stands up, and he opens up his rucksack, and he goes, what is this doing in here? And he reaches in, and he grabs a rock, like a boulder, like this size, like 60 pounds. I don't know. It was huge. It was heavy. And all of us were just, we were in amazement. How, how in the world could he do that? And at that point, I thought, this man is clearly superior to me in every way. Okay, he's, you know, physics at West Point, out, do, running like that with that much weight on his back, no way. 
um, special forces operative, just, I mean, just incredible. But here's the thing. We were all gifted with capacity for amazement. And in this text, it's like Paul puts together the list of things that Jesus, his, this is his resume. This is Jesus Christ. This is what he's done. And he is, wants us to just look at this and be in awe and amazement of Jesus Christ. And he's looking at this, it's like he's looking at it saying, if you're going to be amazed by something, if something is going to call you to love, if something is going to give you hope, let it be this. We were given this, this capacity for amazement for a reason, and Jesus meets those standards. And we're going to get through that. It says, in just verse 15, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. If you want to know how God would respond, look at what Jesus did. We were given Jesus an example of what God would do. We know this. We know this because when we look at Philippians 2, 5 through 6, let's look at verse 6. It says, he who was in the form of God. He was in the form of God. And when we look at form there, that's the word morphe. Morphe, meaning basically the makeup, the same makeup. That's a Greek word. And when, when you see that, what it means is the, the exact makeup of God. In other words, like to put it in our terms, the DNA of God is what Jesus was. He was the DNA of God. John 14, 9 says that when Jesus was talking back and forth with Philip, he says, Have I been with you so long you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Hebrews 1, 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the, majest, of the majesty on high. He is the imprint of his nature. John 10, 30 makes it very, very clear when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So when we look at Jesus, we see the exact nature and character of God. If you want to know what got Jesus upset, take a look, or what, got, what gets God upset, take a look at what Jesus, what got him upset, what stressed him out, what, what got him upset. It, I can tell you one was when we exclude people from the worship of God just because of their race, gender, social class. That gets him pretty upset. I think we've seen that demonstrated in Jesus' character. But we also see how he responds to people and how he loves and how he, he goes to a prostitute and shows love and forgiveness. The, that's, that's Jesus. So if you see that's what Jesus was, that's what God was. When we see the image of the invisible God. Next we see he is the firstborn of all creation. Which this here, some people get hung up on this a little bit. Because he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Does that mean he was part of creation? Some people get hung up on that. And there's entire cults that build information from this, Right? There's entire, um, entire groups that look at this and say, that's right, he was, he was part of, he was the first thing God created. He was the first thing God created, and that's, it's wrong. He was the firstborn of creation. When we look at this term, firstborn, we're going to look at Psalm 89, 25 through 27, where this is used as well. It says in verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He's talking about King David here. It says, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. Talking about King David. How could King David be the firstborn if there's been other kings on the earth already? How can he be the firstborn of the kings of Israel when there's already been a king of Israel? When he says firstborn and what we see here, the firstborn in that culture was superior to the other siblings. 
So when there's a firstborn, they're the ones that give the inheritance. So when we see the firstborn talking about David, that means he will be the greatest and the most superior king to ever walk the planet. And when you see it talking about Jesus being the firstborn of creation, it means he's going to be the firstborn, the superior one over all creation is what it's saying there. That he has authority over all creation. It also, when we look at that, that firstborn term, it lets us know that, that he has authority over creation because, because he's God. And if you look at, um, let's see, all things have been made by him, verse 16. So it's almost like, why, why are we even trying to explain this when the next verse Paul clears it up? Because then he says, all things have been made by him. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, this may be news to some people, but Jesus was not, he didn't just start as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus was in the beginning. And we have scripture to back this up when we look at John chapter 1, which is a very popular popular verse to show this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So he's talking about the Word here. What is the Word? If we read on in John, then we see who he's talking about. Plus, we know who the book of John was written about, which was about Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus. In verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, that he, this he was whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Talking about Jesus. So if you look at that first text in John, John chapter 1, we're going to replace word with Jesus. And this is what we know about Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Do you see that? Jesus is God. Jesus was God. Jesus was there at creation. He was there at creation. He created the world. He created visible and invisible things. Why does he talk about that? Because now we're going to talk about it. He has authority even over angels and demons. He created them. He has authority. All things were created for him. Colossians 1.16 goes on to say that all things were created for him. Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It has all been made for him, and it finds its proper end in him. And you look at this and think, why would someone create something just for their glory. And we have to look at that, look at God and how incredible God is. It's his art. It's his masterpiece. God in his nature is, has art and art came from God. And when we make a work of art, that represents, it's a representation of ourselves. We may make it because we're trying to honor something or someone, but it's our representation of our art of ours that is glory. So what was his most incredible work and incredible masterpiece? Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. I don't think that's on there. Don't look for that one, guys. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are his workmanship. We are his, some texts say his masterpiece. So that's what we are. That's what it is. So we are his works of art, and our nature is to glorify him. Everything was made through him, and everything was made by him. And what was it made for? It was made for him. So we can look at this and say, that, that, you know, that's weird or messed up. Or you can look at it and say, if I want to be happy, if I want to be functioning and find my most fullness and most completion, it is through serving God. 
It is through bringing glory to him. And that's what this text shows us. Next, it goes on to say, he is before all things. We saw that in John. It says, in him all things hold together. I love that. I love how when you look at like Newton's laws and you look at these things, uh, or laws of nature, laws like gravity and, and inertia, you just look at these things, and I love how they're called laws. Because just like laws that we create, laws have to be created, laws have to be governed, and laws have to be enforced. And when we look at these, who controls the laws of motion? Who controls the laws of nature? It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. If he changed his mind, everything would disintegrate. But he holds it all together. He controls all things. Bonds, molecules. He understands the molecular makeup of everything because he created everything. It's all his art. John 20, 19 says, um, this is a cool story about when the disciples were scared and they were praying in a room behind locked doors. It says in John 20, 19, on the evening that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So they're in there scared, hiding behind locked doors, and all of a sudden Jesus just walks through walls, just walks through the door, just goes through it. Well, how could he do that? Well, through science, you know that if you know the molecular, uh, molecular makeup of something, okay, you know the atoms that are put together, and you understand how things operate like that, and you are quick enough, and you knew the molecular makeup, you could pass through a door. I don't recommend trying it. You probably just end up with a sore, sore head or a broken nose or something, but not Jesus, because Jesus understood it. He had authority over creation because he created it. Do you see that? That's Jesus. That's how powerful he is. When he walked on the water, he understood what was going on in the water. He was smart enough to understand that he created it. He knew the molecular makeup. I don't know if when he was walking on the water that, he, that if he looked up, he knew how to position himself perfectly because he understood how everything was made up or if he didn't think about it at all just because he's Jesus. I don't know. But I know either way he could do it. Why? Because he created it. He created all of it. He rebuked the winds and the waves. He had authority over it because it was his creation. And, and I think all this is being mentioned because we need to look at how we picture Jesus. If we picture him as always crucified Savior on a cross, if that's what we picture every time we picture Jesus, we miss this. We should picture Jesus as glorified king, creator of the world. That's Jesus because he was here at the beginning, and we should be in awe of him. Okay, I don't know if the issue is is that we get stuck on, we, you know, we're all watching Netflix, we're watching our movies, we're watching Hollywood movies, we listen to music. Even when you watch YouTube videos now, you have music to let you know when something's ramping up. It lets you know, oh, something's going to happen in a scary movie. You hear noises that let you know this is some, something's about to happen or, or to build your emotions up. You don't have this when you read Scripture, but if we had it, this would be a good spot for it. Okay, because this is the buildup. Okay, we should just look at this and be in awe of God. This should stir something up in us, knowing how powerful he is, that he created these things. He created all things. And what we've been talking about is creation. If you look at it, it started off with he created all things. All things were created for him. So now we have broad scope, right? When we start off in First Colossians, or why do I keep saying that? In Colossians, when we look at it, we see that first it's like a broad stroke. He created all things. He is preeminent over all creation. That's Jesus, preeminent over all creation. But then he gets more specific. So big scope, all creation. But then he draws it down, chapter, chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. Now he's going to 
get a little bit, he's going to tighten it up a little bit. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we've looked at all creation, and now he's talking about his new creation, the church. He is preeminent over all creation, and he's preeminent over his new creation. He is the head of the body. That's why he's the head of the body. That's why no monarch... No, no priest, no pope, no pastor can came, claim authority over his entire church. That's why, because he's in charge of his church. He has authority over it. He is preeminent. He is the superior one over it all. He is the firstborn from the dead is what verse 18 shows us. The firstborn. So we see that again. We know firstborn from the dead. What that means is resurrected ones. And we know that he wasn't the first one to be, to be resurrected, right? He resurrected people himself before he died on the cross and was resurrected. So then we see he is the firstborn from the dead. That means that he has authority over everyone that is resurrected. We see that he, that he resurrected the widow's son in Nain he, um, in Luke chapter 7. In Mark chapter 5, he resurrected Jairus' daughter, Jairus' daughter. So we see this, and we see that he... Other people were resurrected before him, so what does it mean when he says he is the firstborn? It means he has authority over everyone that is resurrected as well. Everything in heaven and on earth, he has authority over. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He is preeminent. He is superior. He is supreme in everything. It says he is preeminent. That means he is, he is incomparable. He's incredible. He is superior Above all things, that is Jesus. And it says, all of God's fullness is in him. All things are reconciled through him. Verse 20. Verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this is something else that we can get hung up on too, because it says reconciling all things. But you have to look at the context of what he's saying, because a lot of people like to look at this and say, He's going to reconcile all things in the end. In other words, everyone, everything visible and invisible, he's going to reconcile in the end by the blood of his cross. People that don't receive Jesus, people that don't believe in Jesus, Satan and his demons, everyone, he's going to reconcile all things to him. Is that what that's saying? Because that's kind of, that's crazy if that's what that means. But we have to look in the context of what he's saying. What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. All things in the church. That's what he's referring to here. Because he, he's just talking about the head of the body. There was a shift in topic now. He's not talking about all creation. He's talking about all things being the church. And we look at John 3.36. says, Who be, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And here's the thing. This idea that Jesus is going to save everyone, that everyone is saved because of what Jesus did on the cross, whether they believe it or not, is heresy. It's heresy, and it takes away from the lordship of Jesus. And we have to talk about it like it's heresy, but here's the thing. They'll say, well, it's not heresy because it's peace by the blood of his cross. They're still recognizing that it's Jesus' blood on the cross that saves everyone, but not everyone recognizes or has to, has to believe in the blood of the cross. Do you see how messed up that is? And so maybe, it's, maybe we won't call it heresy. I'm sure there's like a theolo- theological term for it. We'll call it heresy with maybe some sugar on top. Okay, 
and and I don't care what you put sugar on, okay? If it's if it's puke, I don't care how much sugar you put on it. I'm not eating that. Do you see that? That's gross. I'm not gonna ingest that. It's gross. And we should look at that. And I know that's kind of dramatic, but the reality is, is I can't let that go on to believe that even if you don't call on the name of Jesus Christ and you don't believe what He did on the cross, that somehow you're gonna be saved by the blood of the cross. Because of our text, like John 3.36, it doesn't just say, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It clears it up and says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's a warning. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 says this, And to grant relief to you all who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might. Galatians 6, 7 says that God will not be mocked for what one sows, he will also reap. Okay, this is real stuff. This is stuff we should be concerned about. When you see this text and he says all things, he's talking about those in the church, those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ. And that is a belief that that will send people to hell that we cannot allow to continue, okay? So when you see that, you you have to rebuke it in the name of Jesus. Okay, you should, your eyes should light up. If anyone says, you, any way to get to heaven, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to get to the Father is through me. That's the truth of the gospel. The gospel is a beautiful thing, but you have to receive the gospel for it to be a beautiful thing. So we've seen where Jesus is preeminent over creation, all creation, and he's preeminent over his church. But now we see Going into Colossians 1, 21 through 23, it becomes more and more personal. He keeps tightening it up as he goes. And it's almost like when you look at this text, think of dad's gone working, right? Dad's gone working and maybe the kids are at home. My kids will be home at the house, playing in the house, and and it's a house that dad provided for, right? Because he's out working. And kids are in their father's house, walking around in their father's house. So that's what you see, broad stroke. They are we're kind of operating. He's preeminent over the house. He's superior over everyone in the house. But then when dad comes home, now you have the kids coming. And maybe they'll come to your leg and, and you kind of pat their heads and, and kind of pat their shoulders and that sort of thing. That's, that's the second part that we've seen where, he's, where we're looking at the church. Okay, but then we get to the point here in Colossians 1.21 where sometimes your kids are, you see your kid fall or you see them scrape their knee. And what do you do? It's a different posture here. And this is a different posture that he's talking about, the way that Jesus sees us and his preeminence. And now when you see your children fall, what do you do? You get down with them. You get down with them and you pick them up. And now you're down there with them. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's what he's going to talk about here in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It says, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, we were alienated and we were hostile. And it becomes personal here. It becomes personal. If you look at this, and you who were once alienated, you can look at that and say, and Blake, because Blake was once alienated, 
and hostile in mind, and Blake did evil deeds, and now Blake is recon- and now has reconciled his body of his flesh in order that Blake may be presented blameless and above reproach before him. That's good stuff. You can insert your name there and look at that and see what he did for you because this should become personal because he goes from preeminent over all creation to preeminent over his church to preeminent over you, superior over you, but there's beauty in that. You see, Jesus got down on our level. He became man, right? He, he came to earth, and, he, and I think the clearest text in this, Philippians 2, 7 through 8, it says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. The word empty himself, we see that as, as the kenosis of Jesus. It's, it's from the term kenoa, which means to empty. And that term is used for centurions in the Roman army. That's what it was for because the centurions, what they would do is they would perform kanoa, which means they would take their, their badge off that showed their rank because you had, you, know, you had barbarian tribes that would try to take out the officers, and a centurion was over about 100 men. And when he was on the battlefield, he wanted his men to know to see him and to follow his lead so they could win the battle. So what he would do is he would, he would do kanoa. He would take his rank off. But every one of his soldiers still knew who was in charge and who was running things and who had the authority. And you better believe when Jesus was walking on the planet, every angel and every demon knew who was still in control and who had authority. And so when Jesus did this, he empties himself. He empties himself of all power, or he still has the power, but he doesn't use it. Do you see that? He doesn't use it. When he was on the cross, we all already said that he understood he, he, had, he can pass through walls he understood he can walk on water. He can, he can control the weather. That's how powerful he was. He knows the molecular makeup of the wood he was on. He knew what the, the nails were made up that were to be driven through his arms and through his feet. He knew about the spear going through his side. He could have negotiated that to where it wasn't painful. He could have called off, um, he could have called angels down to get him off the cross. Okay? And we saw in our text everything. Everything invisible, he has authority over. He could have called demons and said, get me off this cross if he wanted to, but he didn't. Why did he not do that? Because he wanted to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Because he loves us. Because he cares about us. You see, Jesus is preeminent. He's he's incomparable. He's superior. But here's what everyone needs to understand. He's not untouchable. Because of what he did on the cross for us, he's not untouchable. He's there for us to touch him. And he gets down and he holds us and he cares about us. And he's a loving God that cares about every single person in this room. And he wants you to look on him and call him Jesus and Lord. His Savior, he wants us to call him Savior and Lord. Going back to the disciples on the boat. When, it, when they woke him, some of the text, some of the scriptures, I think in Matthew, it says Lord, the word Lord. But it's not Lord as L- capital O, capital R, capital D, like we're looking at here. They weren't calling him Jehovah. They were just saying, because other, other um, like I think in, you've got Luke. And when you look at Luke, it, it says teacher. And another text says, says rabbi. Or they're looking at him. They didn't recognize him as Lord. They knew that there was something special about him. They hadn't seen him perform miracles. They had seen him cast out demons. But when he started controlling the wind and the waves and rebuking wind and waves and showing his authority, they stood in astonishment. 
and he was continuously still until the point of his death and resurrection still working on their view of him. And our understanding here and the reason we're going through this text is because we need to see Jesus not just as crucified Savior, but as resurrected King, creator of the universe, superior, eminent one over all. That is what this text in Colossians is about, is seeing him as Lord. And you need to think about how you see Jesus today. How do you see him? Because some of us, it's not about seeing him as, uh, as a crucified, um, helpless person on a cross, but they see him as a genie in the sky. Or maybe you see him as a police officer in the sky that's just waiting for you to do things wrong so he can reject you. Neither of those are true. But what he is, is he is a loving Savior. He is our Lord. And he cares for us, and he died on a cross for us. We all have a capacity for amazement, but there's only one true place where we should put our amazement and our hope, and it is him. Because there's no other hope, there's no other love like the name of Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one, the Lord over all. And he's not just Lord over all creation. He's not just Lord over his church. He's Lord over you. But the part that we have to receive, if you want to receive the benefits of his lordship, you have to declare that over your life. Declare him Savior and Lord of your life. And if you want to do that and you haven't done that, then I, then I tell you, you need to talk to someone after the service. There'll be starting point gods on either, starting point gods on either side of the stage. And if you have been reading this and looking at it saying, you haven't, put, you haven't put the right picture of Jesus on your life. Or if you see this, you just think, I need to stand in awe of this. I need to stand in awe of what Paul is saying here about Jesus in the text. Then don't hesitate to do that. We're going to have one more song in worship. We're going to have an invitation for you to respond. When Jesus calmed the winds and the waves, what did he do? Okay, he let the disciples respond. And their response was, who is this man? You need to ask yourself, who is this man? Who is this Jesus, this Lord that we're talking about? And we're going to give you a chance to respond. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that you are the preeminent one. We thank you that you are superior over all. And we thank you that that in all your dominion and all your sovereignty, you care about us. And you put yourself on a cross and died a very painful death. And we thank you for the resurrection, the resurrection and the truth. We thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Lord, we lean into that. We press into that. And we accept what you did for us on the cross. We love you, Lord. You are salvation and you are truth, Lord. And we give you everything, Lord. We, I pray for everyone in here that, that they don't just see you as Savior, but they can see you as Lord and how you control all things. We submit to your lordship over our lives. We pray that we can be a church that declares your lordship. We love you, Jesus, and we give you everything. You are the only one worthy of our worship. You are the only one that can save. There's no other love and there's no other hope other than the name of Jesus. We give it all to you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Forward Church Weekly Podcast. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in the series, Colossians, Jesus is Lord. For more information about Forward, giving, or to request prayer, visit www.forwardchurchfamily.com.